Welcome to episode 17 of Tall Poppy, another interview with another leader I have deep respect for. I'm your host, Tathra Street. Today I talked to Didier Elzinga, CEO of Culture Amp, the home of the people geeks. Having modern company values, like have the courage to be vulnerable, learn through feedback, and trust people to make decisions, these aren't just pretty words on a website. He walks the talk. I threw him all manner of curly questions, and he just kept answering them. Before the interview, I send guests a list of questions and ask if there's anything that they don't want to talk about. Didier quoted the first value of Culture Amp and said nothing was off limits. As I said, I've ha- I have a lot of respect for Didier, and Tall Poppy isn't an expose. Though, to be honest, as you'll hear, I was a little bit nervous at times, but really, he was lovely. He shared a bit of his own journey and says that he had the most naive business plan in the world when he co-started the company. He's now debunking myths and using social media to his advantage, as Mark Babbitt would describe, a social leader. He's a visionary that knows his limitations and, as you'll hear, can communicate complex issues in a personable and digestible way. He's got a real handle on the commercial realities of business and a beautifully human-centric style of leadership. Have a listen. Okay, I'd like to welcome Didier Elzinga to Tall Poppy. Welcome, Didier. Thank you, Tathra. Pleasure to be here. So let's start with a little bit about um, your name because it is one of the best names I've heard in a long time. Tell me where that comes from. Well, I can take no credit for it, obviously. Uh, It was my my parents' choice. So Didier is a French name. Um, My mum's Australian, my dad's Dutch, and they couldn't agree, so they chose Didier, French. Gotcha. <laughs> and Elzinger is a, a Dutch name. Elzinger, yeah. Elzinger in the English or Elzinger in the Dutch. It's a, it's a Frisian name, so it's Dutch up the coast where they used to get raided by the Vikings. Oh, okay, right. Interesting. So let's dive into Culture Amp. Let's, um, when people ask you what is Culture Amp, what do you say? Uh, I often try and guess who I'm talking to, and then I'll pitch it in slightly different ways. But if I don't know, <laughs> I will say that uh, CultureAmp is a, is a startup, and at CultureAmp, we write software to help people scale culture. So we really focus on employee feedback and analytics and using data to help make people and culture uh, something that you can make effective decisions around. And how long has, been, has CultureAmp been going for now? So I left, I, I, prior to starting CultureAmp, I was running a visual effects company and worked for Hollywood and worked on Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and all of those sorts of things. And that was oh, a little over six years ago. And so I left to start CultureAmp, uh, kicked around for a little while trying to work out what I wanted to do. And then what you see today, if you go look at our website and use our platform, is about four years old. Okay. So, and you recently had a, a second round of funding and attracted a significant investment. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So, we're, uh, we're one of those, uh, you know, fashionably modern VC-backed companies. And we, we didn't start life as a VC-backed company. So, we were actually a bootstrapped company, uh, you know, running off our own funds up until about 14 people and about a million dollars a year in revenue. And at the time, we were fortunate enough to have a lot of the fast growth tech companies as clients. So in, in being around them and talking to other people, opportunities started uh, arriving and we ended up doing a Series A in 2015 and a Series B in 2016 to underpin our growth and, and you know, really give us the fuel to grow faster than we otherwise could have and see if we could solve this problem for as many companies as we could around the world. 
Nice. And so, what ha- what do you think has contribu- contributed to your success? And what you know, what's the difference between your company and others that don't get to that level of success? Uh, I I would always um, be reticent to say that we have some magic source that other people don't. Um, you know, a big part of it is timing, uh, luck. Uh, you have to be willing to. Somebody asked me once, they said, you know, what are the defining characteristics of, of, a, of a startup, particularly someone who wants to be VC-backed? And I said, you need hustle. So you need the ability to go and break down doors and get into places you probably shouldn't be able to get to. But more than anything, you need persistence. I mean, you, you essentially need to keep going beyond the point where most sane people would have given up. And so we're here because we refuse to give up earlier. <laughs> um, and we're here because I think the product, the problem that we wanted to solve, like how, how can I better understand my people? How can I use data to make better decisions around people and culture has coincided with a need. And, you know, companies are increasingly realizing that the people and culture is the biggest lever they have. And we want to be the software that helps them understand that lever. Excellent. So we've heard from Gallup years ago that People are disengaged at work. And so clearly you've, you've been able to tap into being able to provide metrics around that. And, you know, companies that have spent billions of dollars all over the world to try and in- improve this. And it, it sounds as though the improvement has been very limited, if any. So why do you think that is? It's a, it's a fantastic question and one that has a lot of moving parts. Um, one of the parts that's quite interesting is that there there isn't really, you know, a lot of common... Uh, usages of even the term engagement. So, you know, one person will say this group's disengaged and somebody else will say this group's engaged and it depends really on what you're measuring and and, and why. And so part of this is that we keep measuring different things. So how would you define engagement? Uh, the, The description that I like is that at a very high level, engagement is the emotional connection of your people to the goals of the organization. And there are different ways of actually measuring that. And that's not my definition. That's one that's been used in the industry for a while. Um, We tend to measure components of engagement around retention, um, pride, discretionary effort, et cetera. But I guess just bringing it to the point where, you know, when people take the headline numbers, they'll say something like, oh, you know, company X reports that uh, 62% of people are disengaged. The interesting thing or whatever the number is, is to then ask the question, it's like, okay, so what were you actually measuring? And how did you measure it? And those things can be useful. Um, the other part of the answer is, you know, why if people are spending all of this money on trying to improve engagement, so even if we were all measuring the same thing, would we have seen significant improvement? And the answer is probably no. And part of the reason is that it's really hard. You know, at the end of the day, what we're actually trying to do is one of the hardest things there is, which is to create a sustainable, scalable way of giving people a really positive reason to come to work and that's actually really really hard and so there are a lot of situations where you might have a company that has actually created a really strong and powerful work environment but they haven't necessarily got a matching business model and so the company's not able to succeed and that will eventually take its toll Uh, or you have the vice versa where you have a company that has this incredible opportunity in the market but in chasing it they end up giving up a lot of the things that made it a great place to work so I think there are a lot of uh, specific examples where you can show where people have used data or used approaches to improve the engagement of their people and through that improve the success of their business. But if you look across the broad swathe, it's hard. 
And it's something that a lot of people are struggling with and it's something that a lot of people are trying to do better at. So Culture App provides metrics to be able to support or at least understand what's happening on the ground as far as culture and, and people's emotional engagement to, to the company. What difference does that make? So a lot of the difference comes from the fact that they can actually see. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a starting point. And once you've got that, you can start to create strategies. And, you know, I like to say um, there's no such thing as a perfect culture. That's a cult. Uh, <laughs> you know, a good company is one where everybody shares the same uh, understanding of what's going on and what needs working on. And in some ways, I'd make a good analogy back to customer and marketing, which is where we've borrowed a lot of these ideas from in the sense that we, we went through a much more um, sophisticated use of data on the customer side. And I like to say, brand is a promise to a customer. Culture is how you deliver that promise. And that's the, yeah. the two have to be connected together. But going back to this topic about, okay, well, great, now you're using a tool like CultureAmp or another tool to, to understand how your people feel. Why isn't everybody thrilled? It goes back to the same thing. Uh, on the marketing side. So companies start listening to their customers and there's absolutely zero doubt that it improves the way the business operates. It doesn't necessarily mean that all those businesses are now providing the world's best customer service, but they're a lot further down the path because they now know where they're not working and over time they'll do something that they suddenly quickly realize has created a bad effect for customers and they can change it. And then they can change it in weeks or months rather than years, which what may have been in the past. It's quite similar on the culture side. So what people are doing is by having the data, it A, allows them to see things that they may have otherwise taken a much, much longer to find out about, but it also allows them to articulate what they're actually trying to do, even if they're not there yet. Uh, and you can see some really interesting stuff happening around diversity and inclusion and other things where part of getting to the end goal is helping people understand that you're reframing the way the problem's been framed in the past. So I, I like to say sometimes to people that you know, good survey design is not just a psychology in an ivory tower telling you what makes people happy. It's, at its best, a company intentionally describing the experience they want their people to have and then measuring if it's occurring. I want to pick up on, on that in a moment, but I want to go back to what you said about uh, the diversity and inclusion. What are you seeing there? I think... Uh, so I, one of the, the metaphors I quite like is um, a learning model, which you may be familiar with, which is this idea of unconscious incompetence, yes. conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and uh, unconscious competence. Yeah, it's a great framework. I love it. Yeah, particularly because it helps you sometimes uh, not be okay with the fact that you haven't got to the end goal, but at least realize that you have made progress, Yeah. <laughs> even though you, you look around and can see evidence to the contrary. So at, at a high level... What I would hope when I look around and I see the, the commentary that is going on um, in, in industry in general, but particularly in tech, is that we're transitioning from uh, unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. Mm. So we haven't yet created the muscles to get this right. But I think we are seeing progress in the fact that people, are, you know, X years ago, you would have said it's important for us to have more diversity in our senior ranks or it's important for us to you know think about these issues and how we hire and how we um, promote and there may have been some lip surface given to it but it was not even considered a particularly reasonable idea whereas i think now we're seeing a lot more of people saying this is what we want 
We're not there yet. We have a long way to go, but this is what we want. 10, 15 years ago, we weren't even saying this is what we want. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I don't want to be the person that tries to say, hey, we've made lots of progress when people look around and say, no, we haven't. Uh, but I do think that there has been a big shift in the way people are thinking about the problem and the importance of the problem. And that needs to happen for the rest of it to actually become possible. I'm curious about your thoughts when we, when we, I'm going to go big picture for a second here. When we're looking at things like leadership in whether it's, you know, HR or engagement or diversity in the workplace, the, if we can look at the concepts of power and authority and how they relate to leadership, what, what are you seeing? Are you seeing some shifts happening as a result of the, the work that you've been doing? In our customers? Yeah, yeah, because I mean, I can imagine you've got access to a lot of, of data and, and I know you haven't been around that long, but, but I can imagine, you know, even just the fact that people are wanting to increase diversity in the workplace and, and in, you know, in leadership, um, that to me, yeah, like you say, it's, it's, it's a few years ago, we weren't even saying that's, that was desirable and now it's, it's finally, finally happening. So I'm curious, you know, as things change in our in our relationship with society and power and and society and and authority, what does that look like with regard to leadership from your perspective? Wow, that's a huge question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think in in terms of what we're seeing that we can draw out from the data, and and actually we have some diversity specific some diversity data that we're analysing at the moment that I haven't. I was talking to somebody about this morning, but I haven't seen the the um, first-pass analytics on that. So I'm interested to see what that data says. But uh, the, the short answer is it's a little too early to tell. Uh, we're seeing examples of people doing things well. I think we can con connect the dots on some of the things around what leads to more inclusive culture and what are some of the benefits of those things um, and cross-benefits like collaboration and retention and so on. Uh, we're not yet, certainly not from what we've seen, at the point where we could mount any definitive thing that, you know, people that do XYZ are significantly better than companies that don't. Uh, ideally, that's something we'll see. It's not something that I think we've got enough data to, to say meaningfully yet. And that's one of the real challenges in looking at this in the world of work is you're actually crossing a bunch of different things. And so, somebody can create, as I sort of mentioned earlier, somebody can create uh, a really strong culture. And that strong culture, you know, there's a lot of research to show that strong cultures will outperform weaker cultures, that engagement, companies that are highly engaged are more profitable, they have better customer orientation, etc. But there's still plenty of um, commercial risk in all of these businesses. So, there's plenty of examples of great companies for which their product just wasn't quite in the market or the market moved or something changed. And so, they then didn't succeed and it's like, well, was it the business model? Was it the culture? I mean… It's actually both. I mean, the, the culture has to support the business model and the business model has to support the culture. And so, I think the thing that everyone's looking out for is somewhat mythical, which is the thing that got everything right all at once. <laughs> um, and because you get the reverse too, where people look at it and go, that company's been hugely successful, therefore, we should do what they did. Mm. And it's like, well, you know, potentially they were successful in spite of themselves, not because of it. Yeah. And over time, you tend to see those companies uh, fall back down to earth as as is very difficult to maintain. Uh, you know, for example, if if you if your culture is not one that is sustainable, then that will hurt you in the long term. But in the short term, you may look like the best thing ever. 
So I want to draw on something you wrote recently um, that really has dispelled this myth around um, people quit managers, not organizations. And I, there was a lot of um, discussion in the comments um, around that. And you know, I guess if we're looking at something that we can say definitively based on the, the, the data that you have, what was interesting to you about that, that discussion? That was a fantastic conversation. So uh, the the thing there is, you know, many people have heard the phrase, people don't leave organizations, they leave managers. And it sort of passes the sniff test. You kind of go, yeah, I, I can see that. You know, you can relate to your own experience and there's a, there's a feeling of authenticity and a feeling of accuracy about it. And so we decided to take a look at the data that we had. Now, we don't have all the data in the world. We just have our data. But we wanted to take a look at it and see whether that held true. And what we found in our data was that it wasn't that simple, that uh, other things in an organization like commitment to growth and opportunities tended to outweigh people's perception of their local manager. Uh, There was definitely a connection. So it's not that the manager relationship doesn't matter. It's just that it's not the strongest signal across all the data we had. And so we, we shared this and we got a lot of people, we got you know, a reasonable number of people saying, actually, yes, this is great. This is something that I've always felt, but never seen the data to support. Uh, we had quite a bit of pushback too, where people said, you know, so you know, one of our criticisms is that Gallup has made this claim, but they've never shared the data that they, that they drew the inference from. And so quite a few people made the perfectly legitimate counterclaim to us where they said, well, you're criticizing Gallup for not providing your data. Where's the data that you're using? And if you're not going to give that over, why should we trust you? And that's actually a perfectly valid thing. And, and one of the things I haven't written a follow-up post to it yet, but I'd like to say is our goal with that bit of research and with that post was not to say Gallup's wrong, we're right, here's the magic answer. But instead <laughs> yeah. to ask people, to remind people, even if something seems like it makes sense, it's still worth cross-checking it. It's still worth comparing and, and looking at your data and seeing if your data supports it. Um, there's an old, I can't remember who said it, but there, there's an old uh, quote which I've always liked, which is, you know, uh, for every every complicated problem, there is a solution that is simple, elegant, and wrong. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so it, it, what we really wanted to do was just engage people in the process of saying, don't just trust everything, you know, look at stuff, test stuff, say, if this is true, what should happen? And can we go see if that is actually happening? And for me, the... The, the downside of that particular statement is that when people take it as gospel, what end up happening then is oftentimes managers are held accountable for things that they may not be accountable for. And so when you look at our data and it says essentially it's, you know, it's career opportunities, in some companies, the manager is the person who's responsible for your career opportunities. In many others, it's not. There's a, a broader process that goes on that decides who's on what project or how these projects are apportioned out that's well outside the control of your manager, in which case your manager doesn't have the ability to influence you in that way. Yet, if you've gone in with that model, they're being held accountable to it and their feet are held over the flames when that's not the thing that should be focused on. So, that's where we wanted to come at it from. Mm, yeah, I think that's really useful given you know people think, okay, well, it's simple, we'll just blame the manager. But yeah, when there's 
when you're able to provide more information about you know, whether it's the culture or the development opportunities, I think that's that can help. Um, instead of it be like, oh, we're just going to blame the managers and we're going to try and you know train them to be better, when maybe that's you know there's there are greater nuances to it that where we were to put the energy appropriately, then that might actually make a difference. Yeah, and that's the thing in 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 all areas of business, but particularly in in HR and in, in learning and development, we're talking about very limited resources being applied to very large problems. So where can we get the most value out of that, that exchange? And do you have any advice for, you know, as far as perhaps pursuing a development path rather than it being all about the managers? Um, what suggestions do you have for, for people that are looking at creating, um, you know, whether it's development streams or being able to effectively fund development in the organizations or to, to be strategic about fitting that in as a priority? Do you have any suggestions around that? Mm. So I, I guess I come at this in two ways. The first thing is I happen to believe in the, the value and the, inverted commas, power of a good manager. So mm-hmm. I know, you know, if you read a lot of the literature, particularly around sort of self-organizing systems and some of the more modern approaches to how you might run a company, there are models which sort of say uh, there's no, no need or reason why we should centralize what a manager does into a single person. That can be distributed amongst a team. And Are you talking about holacracy? Well, holacracy and others like it. Yeah, uh, okay. One of the challenges that I think is that there is a, a good manager is a really wonderful thing. And they create a lot of leverage. And, peop- you know, most people that I know can point to somebody that they've worked with at some point in their, in their working life who was just an incredible manager. Whether they were actually their manager or not, they just they provided all the stuff that you want from that person in terms of growing them and developing them and supporting them. And so, I think in an organizational context, I think that managers are a very valuable construct and something that can be used in effective, uh, very effectively. I think that the responsibility for giving individuals a place where they really want to be does re- sit at the organizational level. And so you have to really think about what does that look like and how do we make it happen and what do we need to do to make it successful. And what comes through in all of our research and, and certainly the broader research, if you read it, is one of the major drivers of engagement. So one of the reasons why people would choose to stay at a company is learning and development. And part of that is to do with the types of companies we're working with. So one of the things I'm always reminding myself is that, you know, we're really working with the 1% of the 1%. I mean, we're talking Mm. about people that are earning good money doing, you know, complicated jobs and, you know, that's great. Uh, And the way you motivate them is different potentially than the way you do in in other environments. Right. Um, But that is important. So in that environment, when you're bringing people in to do high cognitive load work, I always like to reflect on, 1938, Henry, Fed, Henry Ford said, why is it when all I want is a pair of hands, I get a brain attached? <laughs> and so for him, he was looking at his business saying, all I need is you know, rows of hands that do exactly what I tell them. Yet now, yeah, the, the modern world, so many of our companies like, you gave me a bunch of hands and I have to tell them what to do, my company would fall over tomorrow. You know, I need people that can come in and understand a lot of information and work out what to do with it and make decisions and try things and and fail uh, and pick themselves up and do it again. And so in that environment, people that will thrive and succeed in that environment, not unreasonably, tend to be motivated by, am I growing while I'm doing this? Mm, And so 
if you want to get those people, you have to create that environment. If you want to create that environment, that needs to be set at the macro level. It's not enough just to go, well, there's 10 managers over there. That's their, that's their problem. <laughs> we actually have to sit down and say, this matters. And then often the, the difficult questions that you then have to understand at the organizational level is what are the trade-offs and how do you balance these things? So, for example, one great way of giving people opportunities is moving them around the organization that tends to fight against short-term efficiency because you've got people uh, you know, learning new things and just at the time when they're finally really, really good at something, they're moving on to something else. So that's good for growth and development. It's not always good for capacity utilization or you know, yield or any of those other things. You really need to be able to, to value it at, to, at the expense potentially of short-term losses. You have to have those conversations and you have to sit down and say, what does it mean uh, you know, is it better to have somebody to come in and do the same job uh, every day for nine months and then lose them or to have somebody come in and do the job for six months and then rotate into another role and then rotate into another role and then rotate into another role? Now, that's a forced example. But the thing is, if you, the longer you want to keep people, the less you can have them do things that are only to the company's benefit. So is that how things work at CultureAmp? Do you have, you know, secondment op- opportunities and pe- people moving around in different departments to be able to diversify their experience yeah so we we build it in from the way we run the company uh, and we think a lot about multidisciplinary teams um overlaid onto that we are more than doubling every year so there's a there's a lot of pressure <laughs> to have to do all sorts of different things and we, we find ourselves caught in that vice all the time uh the thing that we do say and and make sure is that the concept of growing is really important and we back that up with specific policies so for example we have a thing called learn yourself up which is an open L&D budget and the idea is that anybody who wants to can go commit to something that they will learn from if it's work related we pay 90 cents in the dollar if it's not work related we pay 50 cents in the dollar so we still encourage people to learn things that even if they're not directly relevant to what they do Fantastic. Um, and the way it works is it's just a spreadsheet. There's a certain amount of money for the quarter and anybody who wants to can go in there and there's a sort of uses a peer model to, to manage the expenditure. It's not perfect. We've had some really interesting conversations about how and why that stuff gets used. But the idea is to put the onus back onto people and allow them to engage in what gets them excited, what gets them motivated. The other thing we do, which I you know, very big believer in, very passionate about, is this idea called um, coaching for everyone. And so... It comes from, you know, oftentimes companies will have an executive coach for their uh, CEO or for their executive team. We extended that to everybody in the company. So at CultureAmp, at the six-month mark, you get five, four, I think four sessions, four or five sessions with an executive coach. And then again on the annual uh, anniversary and then every year. And the idea was to say, we're growing. We need you to grow. Sometimes you need someone external that you can work with. And the point of that is not, you don't have to talk about work. It's entirely up to you. There's nothing reported back to us. It's just a tool to help you grow. And one of the conversations that we had early when we put it in, put it together was, because I've, I've been through this thing before, I said, you know, we have to accept that at some point somebody will leave the company because of the coaching that they got. They'll go and do the coaching and then realize that actually they should be working somewhere or something else is more important to them or something else needs to play in we have to be okay with that because Sounds a little bit like lululemon's model yeah for the one person that leaves there's nine other people that stayed or or 29 other people that stayed and had a deeper better understanding of why they were here 
And so that that's really important to us. And it, I think it speaks to trying to create an environment where growth is encouraged. So can you talk a bit about the values of Culture Amp and how that how that looks on the ground given, I mean, you've had rapid growth mm. and, you know, you're doing pretty well with it. You're maintaining that and you've got, you know, a very bright future in front of you. So how do, how do the values help shape um, what happens on the ground, but also your ability to grow and scale? So interestingly, as we've got bigger and, and we now have four offices, so we're Melbourne, San Francisco, New York and London, um, the values have become more and more important in helping people make decisions for which there aren't preset answers. And there's a lot of situations where that occurs. So as an organization, we've spent quite a lot more time talking about values in the last six months than we did in the six months before and in the six months before. And I think that will continue. And so I do an induction every time somebody joins the company. Uh, I do a session with them. And what I talk about is culture and values. And the thing that I say is, you may not remember what we actually talk about in this meeting. I'm a big believer of that, the the quote, um, I won't remember what you said, I won't remember what you did, but I will remember how you made me feel. So it's important that they understand how we feel. But what's even more important is that they understand that as I, as CEO, talking to them about culture and values is the single highest leverage conversation I can have. And going later into the company when we're 400 people and employee 187 might be a junior developer that it's not only okay, it's actually wanted that they would ping me as the CEO and say, hey, I saw this thing or I was thinking this thing about the values and I wanted to talk to you about it. Much more important than me talking about anything else. So we, we put a lot of effort into it and the way we frame the values is very much in terms of thinking about not what do we want to be on a good day, but what are we willing to hurt for every day? What's the environment that we're willing to co-create? And I think of it in the context of... Uh, you know, we all have personal values, whether they're articulated or not. And if we're given the opportunity to work in accordance with those values, then we feel motivated, we feel fulfilled, we feel higher energy. It, it's a good place to be. If we're asked to act in a, uh, against those values, it's very difficult. And so what matters is not your organization will not have your values and, and the organization won't have yours specifically, but they have to resonate with each other. They have to be aligned. And so our job is to create a place where people can come and go, that is a place that's going to make me feel like the best version of me that I can be. And that's what we strive to do. Do you want me to actually go through the values? I do because I think they're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the, the three values we have are have the courage to be vulnerable as our first value, learn faster through feedback as our second, and trust people to make decisions as our third. And they... We now actually sequence them in that order because they build upon each other. So have the courage to be vulnerable is really, for me, the heartstone of everything and it's the one that everything else is built upon. And if you're familiar you with Brown. More and, about what that actually looks like on the ground? Because, I mean, these are, you know, it's, it's, a, um, it's a value that I think is, is super important and I think a lot of people have an idea of what vulnerability looks like. Um, and you know, especially at work, it, there may be some misconceptions around that. So when, so when, when you see examples of people being vulnerable and having the courage to to do that, what does that look like in your office? So we actually went through a process of collecting stories uh, internally around each of the values. So what have you done, or what do you see, or how do people engage in being vulnerable, and why is that important? 
And a lot of it focuses on, you know, willingness to take risks, willingness to open ourselves up. One of the things that I think is really interesting about values, and this goes back to a thing that my a friend of mine said about um, logos and design. And he said, you know, you have logos that are more aesthetically pleasing than other logos. But at the end of the day, a logo is just a vessel. What you do with it is what matters. Mm-hmm. And so values, to my mind, are kind of similar. The wording is important. But even more important is the way the organization grabs that and uses it to create behavior and to, and to talk about things and say, I'm going to do this differently because we have this value. And for me, the core idea behind it comes from a poem. So one of the things I do to present, exemplify the value uh, during that session with each new employee is I read them a poem, which is the Cloths of Heaven by Yeats. So I'll read it to you now and then I'll explain why I read it. So had I the heavens embroidered cloths inwrought with golden and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths of night and light and the half light, I would spread the cloths under your feet. But I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly because you tread on my dreams. And I've always loved that poem uh, from being a kid. And it wasn't actually till we were starting to articulate the values that I went back to it. And those last two lines for me really capture what we're asking for because good values should be should have a sense of mutuality about them, that they're both something that the organization provides to you, but also something that's expected of you. And so the first bit, I've spread my dreams under your feet. That's our expectation on you when you join Coltramp, that you're bringing all that you are, all that you're willing to be, and you're going to share that. You can't just wall that away and, and say, oh, I'm just this person at work and I'm somebody else somewhere else. You know, we want you to share who, who you are and what you want to be so that we can grow with you. But the flip side of that mm-hmm. is we have to recognize that's what we're doing, that that can be uncomfortable, that that can uh, open us up, and we have to create the environment which others can do. And so the moment you join, you also have to be willing to let other people do that, and that's hard. Tell me about the, the one about feedback. What is it, learn? Learn faster through feedback. Learn faster through feedback. So and, Yeah, that yeah. comes from... If we have the courage to be vulnerable, then we can learn faster through feedback. Mm, So if we're willing to open ourselves up and we're willing to um, be vulnerable and be authentic and and really think about what we need to do, then we can go through this process of maybe making mistakes and then learning from those mistakes. And all of these values are actually product values too. So have the courage to be vulnerable is, is about putting tools into the hands of an organization to potentially for the first time, share with everybody how everybody feels, which can be difficult as a CEO when somebody goes, I don't like this or I think we're doing this wrong or whatever. Um, but they do it so that they can learn it and then start to improve and get into that loop. And then that leads to the last one, which is the trust people to make decisions, which is mm. now that you have that environment where people are willing to be open and to be vulnerable and they're willing to get out there and learn things, you can trust people and it's important because if you actually believe in this iterative process, um, you know, there's no such thing as the right answer. There's like an answer and then let's test it. So clearly these are very modern values for an organization and it, it's clear you've got a very um, – there's a lot of faith in CultureAmp to, you know, 
do great things in the future, given you've you know attracted this this funding, mm. um, and given your you know your vision for the future and your awareness of you know how the job market is going to change. What do you think is important for us to pay attention to as the future of work sort of comes more in our face every day? Oh, another meaty question. Um, <laughs> the thing that I that, that sort of occupies a lot of my thinking time around the future of work is, you know, I think there's a lot of valid data pointing to this concept of a more transitory work environment. So when you look at things like your, you know, the Uberization of markets and work on demand and contractor type, the gig economy, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I think there's obviously a lot to support that way of thinking. On the other side though, I see that the problems we're trying to solve as organizations are getting increasingly more and more complicated. We're trying to support and, uh, you know, succeed for many more stakeholders than we used to. So if you think about it, like, you know, a, a manufacturing company used to just try and build a product for as cheap as possible. You know, mm-hmm. now they're trying to build a product that's as cheap as possible, but that is also uh, not going to harm the environment and is created in a way as the sustainable or scalable and has a brand that people buy into and that there's a community around it. And so there's all these different things that people are now trying to work out how to optimize for, how to create organizations that can be successful in. And so for me, in trying to solve those problems, you almost go the other way, which is we need people to work together for longer and in, in more trusted relationships, not more transactional ones, so that we can create that environment. We can actually do the work, the really hard work required to create something that is actually valuable in all of these different dimensions. So I think the big, the sort of the framing point I would say is that I think the last, say, 150 years of the world of work has been a push towards scalable efficiency and a belief in economies of scale. I think going forward, that's going to shift to the need for scalable adaptability. Mm. So less about eking every last bit out and instead creating something that can um, cope with massive change. Yeah. And if that's the case, the, 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 the thing that I think is really interesting to pose is that if, scale, if there's no economy of scale, then getting bigger as a company is not useful. Like it's actually going to cost you more for every incremental person you add. Mm. But if there's no economy of scale, maybe there's other things that are valuable that can make us more adaptable. And that's actually where things like diversity and so on actually become really interesting because um, at least uh, logically, a large company can absolutely be more diverse. And I wonder what it's going to look like in the future, especially, you know, there's these stats that, you know, all these large, you know, Fortune 500 companies are less adaptable, less agile, and perhaps not going to last into the future in the same way that smaller companies that have um, perhaps more, you know, purpose-based approaches to business or have different, you know, values like like uh, culture amp does um what what do you what do you predict is going to happen in the future when you know whether it's you know mechanization or um you know whether it's things changing around levels of disengagement at work or skill shortages what what do you see what do you think is going to happen uh it's it it's going to be profound i think it's one of those things where you don't tend to really know what's happened until you look back and record it um Mm -hmm. My 
broad gut feeling is that if you look at the the sort of shapes of companies, so there's a lot of data to show that companies are existing for less time than they used to. So you used to have companies that would last for hundreds of years. It's now 50. The half-life of companies has got shorter. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think what that's pushing towards is the traditional model is you have quite a few large companies. We, you have like a handful of very large companies and then you have really small ones. And there's not a huge amount in the middle because uh, the big ones basically just keep getting bigger and gobbling people up once they get to a certain size. My expectation is you're going to see more of a shift in the sense that the bigger companies will get smaller um, because it will. there's not huge value to just creating bigger and bigger organizations. Uh, but that smaller companies will get bigger because if you think about the rise of globalization and, and access to markets, a company that 20 years ago could only really have been a service provider for the local area can now sit down and say, actually, I can solve this need, but I can solve it globally. So whether it's an agency or whether it's a, you know, any type of knowledge business, they can actually tap into a global economy. So I think that you're going to be seeing more companies with 100 or 200 or 300 people uh, than you used to, but then less companies with, say, 100,000 people because it just doesn't make sense to do that when you could have two or three smaller companies that are all very successful at what they do. So a bit more space in the middle. Well, sort of a pushing back into the middle. So at the moment, you kind of get barbell economies. And if you look at the US as sort of an example of the way some of the economies might go, um, you have many, many more companies in the middle in the US than you do in, say, Australia as a percentage. The other thing I wanted to ask about that is it's a very exciting time for startups. And you know, given you're in a startup that's, that's done really well. And I can imagine you've probably seen quite a few that haven't. What advice do you have for people who are in a startup or are thinking about starting something? They might be a bit reluctant. There might be a lot of obstacles. What, what advice would you have? Don't do it. It'll Don't work. do it? <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I mean, I think you have, to be, you have to be cognizant of the fact that there's this great video that I... I on YouTube, it was Anthony Robbins' 50th birthday present to the world and he cut this thing together with some footage from Rocky and Snatch and some you know, very inspiring stuff over the top and there's Rocky talking to his son saying, you know, somewhere along the way you let somebody put a finger in your face and tell you what you couldn't do. If you're willing to bear the pain, nobody can tell you what you should shoot for and I believe in that. I fundamentally believe in that but it actually has to be to the point where you'd say, look, if I'm if I spend 10 years of my life trying to break this and trying to get in and I don't, I'm okay with that. Then you can give it a shot because <laughs> it's hard. It's really, really hard and chances are you'll probably fail. Mm. And so, but if after knowing that you still want to do it, go do it because it can be incredibly rewarding and we need more people that do. But I think one of the challenges is I see people coming in going, you know, should I be an investment banker or should I start a company? It's like, oh, be an investment banker. You get paid tons of money. You can do also, go for it. You know, you're not going to do it because it, you think it's going to optimize for a better outcome. You're going to do it because you have no choice because <laughs> you, 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 you're just wired that way. What I'm hearing and what you're saying is that people should really look at their commitment. And if it's that, you know, I really uh, don't see any other option or, or I'm just so, so committed to this, this idea that even if it's you know really painful and really uncomfortable and lots of hardship, I'm still willing to do it then at that point, perhaps. Yeah. And then I think, you know, if, if you want to do it or even if you just want to get a feeling for it, you know, the, the best first step is to go work 
uh, around or, or with a startup that's already trying that because what what that does is it gives you exposure to all the sorts of problems you can start to you know build a network and, and see some of the problem solving so you can do your own and somebody said to me once that the best uh, the best employee for a, for a startup is somebody for whom you'll be the last place they ever work mm. so you, you want that mentality of somebody coming in going you know I just want to learn all the things because then I'm going to go do it myself because uh, they've got that desire to take ownership and they've got that desire to get in there and roll their sleeves up and and learn learn everything they can and oftentimes you there's a lot that you may not think of that you can borrow from somebody else whether it's the way they budget whether it's the way they think about go to market or how they hire or just little things that you can take away and you can go i learned five things three of them i'm going to do in my next company and the other two i'm absolutely not (laughs) oftentimes people found companies based on what they don't want to do as much as what they do want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So just a few final questions. Um, is there something that motivated you to change yourself to improve your leadership? Lots of things. Um, what stands out in your mind? Probably along the way that I said this in another interview and it was the first time I'd ever articulated it this way, but the people that I failed along the way. Ooh. So whether it was somebody that I hired and then it didn't work out and I kind of look back and go, why didn't it work out? What could I have done differently that would have made it work out? Or mm. where we did or didn't win some particular thing or we went for something and it didn't work. Now, I've been through, you know, both in my current company and in, in previous companies and I've sat on boards and been around organizations that have had great success and I've also seen, you know, lots of failure and, and situations where everyone's looking at each other going, how, how did it get to this point? Um and then those are the point. Those are usually the moments where you sit down and try and ask yourself, challenge yourself. What can you learn from this? What could you do differently in the future? And the model of leadership that I subscribe to is this idea that often people think of leadership as a heroic thing. It's you know kicking the winning goal or doing something to do it, and at that point everything is absolved because you you won the thing. And I think leadership is much more. Um, real than that it's choosing between two equally difficult situations and you will have blood on your hands either way I mean not to overly dramatize it uh, but it is very much about mm-hmm. are you willing to live with the consequences of the choices you made that's really what you have to come to terms with because those decisions are not always decisions that will lead to great outcomes and yeah engaging in that and just thinking about what you consider when you make those decisions that that's the stuff that I I think about and in terms of the effect it has on other people, I think of leadership as a, I like the term, I think Daniel Goldman wrote the book, but I have my own sort of version of it called resonant leadership. And so the idea is, it's not that I push you and it's not that I pull you, it's that I act in accordance with a certain set of ideas. And if those ideas resonate with you, it creates energy in you to act too. And it's a little bit like hitting a glass at a certain amount of water. If you hit it at the right frequency it will resonate and the other glasses will resonate too and so that's what i think about when i think about leadership and most of that is learnt when things go bad Mm -hmm. absolutely so uh, my next question is what do your critics say about you oh hopefully not too much um (laughs) i don't know it's actually one of the challenges when you're a ceo is you don't tend to get that feedback directly um Mm. one of the the things is I, I tend to be very much on the concept of 
on the idea, the concept. And so I'm very focused on trying to get that right. Mm-hmm. And there are people that I need to have around me if we're going to be successful who can get frustrated with that because they're like, okay, that's great and I like it and I want to do that thing too. But there's this thing over here that we have to resolve and we haven't resolved that thing. Um, so that, you know, there's a there's a style thing there in terms of of my preference is the the uh, Saint Antoine quote of you know if you want to uh, get the men to build a ship if you want if you want to build a ship don't gather the men divvy up the wood and give them orders but instead teach them to dream for the endless sea so I'm a big believer in dreaming for the endless sea but it's perfectly appropriate that someone will go okay that's great where's the model for the ship. Yeah. <laughs> So is that the kind of thing that you look for as far as when you're putting teams together or perhaps when you're even doing succession planning that you want to have people that have a range of different um, ways of approaching things so that it's not all just people who are going to be, you know, looking to the to the vision of the sea? Yes. Uh, I mean, you do. I, I also think it's a cop-out for somebody, me included, to say, you know, I'm an ideas person or I'm a big pers- big picture or something. We all have a part to play in everything and, and I like a good plan just like the, the next but yeah, it's recognizing that we have different people have different strengths, and you want to play to those strengths, and you want to assemble a team of people with uh, complementary strengths, not a team with the absence of weaknesses. Mm, beautiful. Is there anything just before we finish that that you want to to share as far as like a particular vision that you have, either for you know the way things could be if the vision of your your business was realized, or a particular um, you know something about leadership that that you would like to leave people with? That's quite a profound question. I think for me, when I started Culture Amp, I had the world's most naive business plan. So. 10,000 by 10,000 equals 100 million. I wanted to create a business where tens of thousands of companies around the world uh, needed my product and, and it would create a, a meaningfully sized company. And that was even before I really knew what I wanted to do. The way I conceive that same thing today, I still think about that 10,000. But for me, you know, our mission is to make the power of people analytics accessible to everyone. And so the the vision or the future, if you will, is I look at people bringing data and using data that started in finance and then in operations and then in marketing. And I think the tipping point at which it really started to change the way companies worked was when the data came in-house, when it became something that was uh, that you did rather than something that was done to you. Mm. And so for me, the change that I want to bring about is to be that. You know, I want Coltram to be that platform that allows people to bring this data in-house, learn how to use it, and that that in weight across tens of thousands of companies around the world will make companies a better place to work and that it will push companies towards better ways of interacting with their staff and allowing those people to grow and be engaged and be emotionally committed to what they're trying to achieve. Fantastic. I love it. So um, the, the last thing I want to do is just give people an idea of ways to connect to Culture Amp because you have these really cool people geek meetups. Can you say, first of all, what's a people geek and how can people connect uh, as far as like what cities the, the meetups happen in? Mm-hmm. So a people geek, hopefully, is everybody listening to this show. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's our term for people that care about people and culture but want to roll their sleeves up and get engaged and want to think about it the way a geek does, which is, you know, give me some data, learn, act, repeat, get into an iterative learning cycle. 
And so we run events globally to bring people together that would consider themselves people geeks, whether it's HR, whether it's managers, whether it's just frontline employees, but they care deeply about people and culture. Uh, www.peoplegeeks.com uh, is the website for that community. And we run events uh, all over the world. Uh, in Australia, we run them in Sydney and Melbourne and occasionally in some of the other cities when we can get out there. And there's also a Slack channel for people geeks that we have. And we do podcasts and a weekly people geekly as well. So, you know, a big part of our thing is to create a community that we sit inside. And I'd, I'd love everyone listening to uh, become a people geek, a card carrying people geek as well. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and what are some of the other cities outside of Australia that you've got people geek meetups? Oh, fantastic. So, San Francisco, uh, New York, London, Toronto, Vancouver, Paris, Amsterdam, uh, Austin. I think there's. I think we did 23 cities last year. So wow, that's lots, exciting. Boston, lots All of different cities. Place. You're taking over the world. We're trying to. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much for um, taking the time to speak with me today, Didier. I have absolutely loved this conversation, and I'm sure that the listeners will as well. My thank you. Thank you for having me on on the uh, on the show, and uh, look forward to listening to all your other guests. Now, been going back <laughs> through the lists. Are you a people geek? If you haven't been to a people geek meetup and you live in or near one of the cities DA mentioned, I recommend it. Especially have if you've got any interest in HR or as it's been rebranded people and culture, if you're interested in employee engagement and want to be surrounded by other people who care about being happy at work and providing meaningful workplace culture, it's definitely worth checking out. So I've got a chunky list of things that stood out for me in this interview. Starting with the fact that Didier doesn't take the success of the company for granted. He recognizes that timing and luck had a role to play. And I love how he says that there's no such thing as a perfect culture. That's a cult. That good companies have a shared understanding of what's good and what needs working on. As he mentioned, there's always going to be a degree of commercial risk. And that the business model has to fit the culture and vice versa. And that there's no mythical company that gets it all right at once. He says, brand is a promise to a customer, culture is how you deliver that promise, and the two have to be connected. He acknowledged that it's not his definition, but the one he uses, engagement is the emotional connection of your people to the goals of the organization. I think it's quite powerful. It really names the emotional element that's often dismissed. The other thing he said that really struck a chord was about diversity and inclusion and that we're finally consciously incompetent and know that it needs improvement. So many great points, just a couple more. Talking to new staff about culture is the highest leverage conversation I can have, he says. And oh my God, his tall poppy advice, that one gave me pause. And it's been merely making a dent in how I think about my own entrepreneurial path, as well as what I see others doing when they start a business or are in the startup phase. It can be painful to watch when people don't get traction and worse to experience. It's that age-old question of knowing when to hold and when to fold. Did he identify that a contributing factor to their success was being persistent? They didn't give up when other sane people might have. How do you know when it's time to keep going or when it's time to move on? Let's look at the Culture App values for some further learning here. You don't have to be on staff to benefit from what they stand for. When was the last time you had the courage to be vulnerable on a professional, in a professional setting? When have you learned from feedback, and can you see an opportunity there? Trust people to make decisions. 
Can you imagine what would happen if we all did this just a little more? CultureAmp is one to watch. They're doing a lot of things right. And when they make mistakes, I reckon their values will play a role in their ability to deal with it, learn from it, and move on. Remember, all the stuff that we talked about is in the show notes, either via iTunes or Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. Or directly from my website, tathrastreet.com forward slash podcast. Just click on the episode to get the show notes. This is episode 17. Next week, we focus on using business for good. If you haven't heard of B Corps and you're a fan of corporate social responsibility, check out episode 18. As a side note, Culture Amp and a few of my other guests in the past are also certified B Corps. Thanks again for listening. Please feel free to drop me a line if you have some feedback or if you have a suggestion for me to interview someone that you work for or that's a human-centered leader or just someone that's great to work for. You can email poppy at tathrastreet.com and you can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook, of course. And my name is spelt T-A-T-H-R-A and my surname, Street, just like road, S-T-R-E-E-T. Lastly, if you've enjoyed this, share it on your favorite social media platform, send it to someone you think who might enjoy it, or write a review. It makes a huge difference to help your fellow listeners decide to click to subscribe or listen to a particular episode. On iTunes and Stitcher, it's super easy. Thanks for being part of the Tall Puppy community and this changing paradigm of leadership, looking at it from a different angle, where we consider the whole person and our own leadership, regardless of our role at work, business, and in life. <laughs>